The D2C Growth Show. Welcome to the D2C Growth Show, presented by Banknotes, minted by hashtag paid, where we talk all things e-commerce and D2C. My name's Sophia, and today I got to speak with Mike Sanchez, who is the Chief Revenue Officer at Flavor Cloud, which is a one-stop shop for international shipping to help brands expand their sales on a global scale. Mike has quite the extensive experience working in leadership across different organizations, such as Bold Commerce, Rackspace, and WP Engine. In today's episode, we dive into topics such as building diverse teams within organizations and how important that is to the success and vision of a company. We also dive into common challenges amongst teams like imposter syndrome and ways leaders can preserve the psychological safety of their teams. Without further ado, let's dive right in. Okay, so let's start off with an introduction on yourself. Um, Just give us and the listeners a little background on who you are and how did you reach this point in your career? Sure, yeah. Um, Mike Sanchez, um, currently right now the Chief uh, Revenue Officer at Flavor Cloud. We're a uh, cross-border logistics uh, technology that helps kind of, you know, help all DTC brands uh, ship anywhere. And um, been in technology, I would say for, man, 20 years, I guess you would say. It's really starting to add up. Um, but um, started off more on the, on the technical side though. So uh, started off as a software engineer, um, went and was going to school for um, computer science at uh, University of Texas, San Antonio. Um, you know, one of the things, you know, we'll talk about later, which is uh, imposter syndrome. And I think that pops up a ton is, um, you know, when, um, when going to school, I, uh, you know, I was working three jobs. So grew up from very humble beginnings. Um, and back in um, the early 2000s, um, remote learning really wasn't a thing, or at least it wasn't in the senior level classes. So when it got to a point in my senior year on 105 hours, um, I essentially had to make a decision because I couldn't reach my senior level classes. I um, was working three jobs because that's what I had to do. So I ended up having to uh, leave school in my senior year. And uh, I ended up going to work at a uh, technology company called Rackspace, which was out in San Antonio. Um, joined Rackspace, um, joined as a uh, an account manager. That was probably my first foray into like more of a business level type role versus, you know, doing like software development and uh, system administration. Mm-hmm. So did that and, uh, you know, went really well. Um, spent seven and a half years there, um, tackled um, roles, individual contributor roles from um, customer success to uh, sales, SMB and enterprise, um, uh, all the way through, you know, multiple leadership positions. And uh, the reason how I got, uh, how I started into e-commerce started there. Um, so the big thing with Rackspace, we were a uh, hosting company. So I helped um, build out our strategy to create a e-commerce vertical, working with, um, back in the day, this would have been the, uh, the e-commerce platforms, uh, would have been like Magento and um, Oracle Commerce and you know, some of the old school ones that are now legacy, um, the digital agencies who would help build these sites for the brands and then dealing with the merchants themselves. So this was like my first experience into like, really getting into like what e-commerce was the components of what it took to kind of launch a store and uh and i got man just uh obsessed with e-commerce i loved it so uh, so from there uh ended up taking a role at big commerce which is an e-commerce platform um out here in austin so got hired there to go help build out their um basically their their initial enterprise organization and strategy so uh spent some time there um 
it was really cool. I basically uh, replaced a, you know, I had about a team of about 70 people at Rackspace mm -hmm. and then um, walked into my job at Big Commerce and uh, had a team of four people. Wow. And it was basically like, great, you know, go from a $2 billion company to a $25 million company. And, uh, but that was the type of challenge I wanted to take on uh, to do that. So it's been a couple of years there, uh, building um, that piece out, getting to work with all types of great brands from uh, SMBs to mid markets and enterprise. And then uh, made a move over to WP Engine, where um, spent about four years there. So WP Engine, another great um, success story out in Austin. They're a um, you know a work a digital experience platform leveraging WordPress and um, WooCommerce is a big piece that we worked on as well. So um, so a lot of great stuff um, did there. Um, from there was able to um, build a lot of things, partner strategies, sales strategies. Um, built out an e-commerce strategy there for them. And then uh, my latest role that I helped there was I was uh, leading our uh, global partnerships, you know? So I had teams in Australia, um, the United Kingdom, in London, um, all over the US. So got to uh, spend a lot of time abroad uh, doing some really fun stuff, meeting some great uh, partners, brands, mm -hmm. um, and also getting a, my first glimpse into seeing, you know, the differences of how we, um, run commerce and business here domestically versus how somebody would, you know, mm -hmm. say run that outbound right out of the UK and mm -hmm. um, in Australia. So um, it was really cool to kind of experience that. And then uh, and then most recently, um, I spent a couple of years as a chief revenue officer at Bold Commerce. So they were the, um, I guess, uh, based out of uh, Winnipeg, Canada. So that's where I, uh, I got to experience my a uh, lot of my uh, tri multiple mm -hmm. trips to Canada, which I absolutely <laughs> love Canada. It's awesome, with the exception of the freezing cold. But um, but uh, we did some great stuff there, um, led, you know, multiple organizations. But I would say the one thing I loved there was we worked with so many different brands from all different sizes, flavors, uh, industries, verticals that they worked in. You know, we had roughly, you know, 80,000 plus customers because, you know, we were the mm -hmm. largest Shopify app developer. Right. So we had all types of mm -hmm. customers leveraging things. So seeing these like really cool success stories, seeing these really awesome things, these brands, what they're doing, just thought that was just uh, amazing. And then most recently been at um, Flavor Cloud since uh, November. So here fairly recent, um, you know, halfway through my, my first year here. And, um, and the reason I, you know, I, I worked with Flavor Cloud is, um, you know, I saw this massive, it goes back to a little bit of my WP Engine experience, just massive opportunity for international for these brands being able mm -hmm. to enable brands to sell anywhere to not just be mm -hmm. limited but how you know being able to do that in such a simple and mm -hmm. easy way on how to get it out the door and uh, and that's one thing flavor cloud is doing um i just saw this like obviously massive tam amazing leadership and team like i love my team and the people we work with here um, but also solving a big problem, right? So instead of mm -hmm. having this like massive brand who gets to sell everywhere, you know, empowering a brand who's maybe not, um, doesn't have the the uh, operational rigor or the finances or whatever to do that and say like, hey, let us help you sell to, you know, 10 different countries. Yeah. Let us help you get this out the door and do within, you know, weeks or days, you know, to go and do that. So felt there's a bit of uh, not only a uh, great, business opportunity, but also a, a passion piece too, where it's like helping all brands, you know, really get to, to, uh, you know, push there. So yeah, that's a little bit of a uh, long winded about me and kind of how I got today. So, uh, yeah, 
Thanks. I love that. And I think one thing actually um, in your piece when you were sharing was that you went from like a company where you're managing like over 70 people to then an organization where you managed four. So I was actually just curious how, like what were, I guess, the benefits of managing a bigger team versus a smaller team? Like what are the challenges when you're moving from like a large team to now managing a small team? Yeah, I would say, you know, in managing larger teams and larger organizations, um, you know, I, I call it like while you're growing the business, I, I almost consider it like maintenance in a sense. Mm -hmm. You have, right, established marketing resources that run like an engine. You have a big CX teams, sales teams. Mm -hmm. So really what your opportunity is, is to be operationally excellent, right? And create mm -hmm. this, you know, efficient engine, uh, engaged culture, you know, being able to kind of, you know, ensure that we're, you know, dialing in, right, um, you know, on every single thing that we do, right? So I always say this, like when you're an executive in a larger company, you're, you're kind of like a, you know, you're focused on dashboards and metrics and all these little things and where all these inefficiencies are and you have so many resources at your disposal. Going over to four people, right, and uh, to do this, um, yeah, you don't really have that. You you have mm -hmm. like, hey, there's a person, one or two people marketing you can kind of work with, but they're also doing like five other things in their job. Um, you know, same with my team, same with some of the other folks I got to work with. So, but the benefit and what I really loved about that was um, I wanted to learn. Mm -hmm. You know, the reason that I made that move is I was actually just bored. Um, I, I wanted to be challenged. I wanted to like, you know, challenge myself like could i go build what i saw get built at rackspace granted i was you know they're further along when i joined but I was like but can i be a part of like what the leaders there were to go help this company go do the same thing so um i would say for there you have to be resourceful your people have to be extremely resourceful they have to be curious um you can't go and when you hire people on the team you know you, you look for what i say like polymaths right people that can go do multiple things and it not feel like, you know, they're a, a one trick pony. Um, and, and folks like that are completely great at larger companies, but you really need to do a lot of different things. So I would say that was probably the first experience of like, oh, so I don't have just this, comp you know, this uh, organization just doing all this stuff for me. It's like, well, I guess I got to become a Salesforce administrator now. And now I got to go figure out how to go uh, run demand gen, which, you know, was taken care of for me in another company. So I would say those are the the big things that were, uh, honestly, I, they're absolutely fun. It's like the stuff that gets me so excited. No, I totally agree. I think that like, that's, that's kind of the same secret sauce that gets me excited about e-commerce brands as well, because like, as we know, and from like the, the founders that we've spoken to, like e-commerce brands, they're lean and they're scrappy yeah. and you really do need those polymaths at the beginning. And so they say, what is it? it the, the common saying is, uh, start off with generalists and scale with like specialists. But I think that they, we, we glaze over that really important piece of like, if you are trying to get your foot in the door and stuff, you need those people who can not only, you know, wear those multiple hats, but like teach others to do the same stuff, thrive with that uncertainty. And you need leadership and stuff who can really discover those secret talents that may not be totally developed like as your your company like uh grows and expands and so like i did have a question about hiring because you know i think that we see a lot of hiring in tech and stuff kind of coming in from like two 
from like two directions. It's rather like the out, right out the door, out of school direction where there is a co-op, there is hand holding, hand holding us up. There are brands and stuff who, or, or companies who have the established, uh, like connections and stuff in the institutions and essentially it's like a pipeline of people going through courses and then they pop into the door into their first tech company or you have those challenge seekers who are looking mm. for that new challenge they're looking for that new initiative that is unique and they're hungry for it and they go seek out the company and of course like the first thing that they see in stuff is probably a job posting right if they're searching for the yeah. opportunity they look at the company they find that job posting and it is like the in tech right like classic like looking for mission driven, you know, like, uh, aligned with like these values, which are so important and stuff in like showcasing like what your company is about. But I think that that signposting often can attract a very specific type of, uh, of candidate that comes in that can unfortunately sometimes lead to that monoculture. If, you know, mm -hmm. the relationship is, I see you black and white on a screen and I have not met anybody. I've not really interact with the product yet. So, you know, in order to avoid hiring a team with a monoculture, how do you build a process that really prioritizes that those maybe diverse uh, skill sets that would come with those, those polymaths that you, you talked about? Yeah, that's a, a great question. And, uh, oh my gosh, I, I've, seen this happen way too many times or, or even been a part of it earlier in my career, right? Where, um, where that happens. So, um, the process I've used in the past, I would say if you have resources and, and you can do this is, um, at Rackspace, we were, were big believers in, um, leveraging like strengths finder through Gallup, right? Where you get your, like your top five mm -hmm. strengths. I'm not sure if, uh, if you guys have done that or seen that before, mm -hmm. but like, for example, like my, um, you know, my top five strengths are, you know, futuristic, re relator, ideation, self-assurance, analytical, right? Yeah. So what we did at Rackspace was, um, this wasn't like a, hey, take this test and see if you like, it's, it wasn't a test to get into Rackspace. It was actually to help us build diverse teams. Mm -hmm. So for example, mm -hmm. if I'm a futurist, um, and I do this also, so like, let's just like you said, right, seeking out jobs. So when I was seeking out my next role, the way how I work with our CEO and our strengths, I want to make sure we complement and we're not identical. Mm -hmm. So for example, if we're both futurist, then we're going to be sitting around just thinking about the future the entire time. And, um, but who's going to be executing, who's going to be focused on like that day-to-day -day rigor of what needs to get done. So there's one, there's areas that I always like to try to look at that. So we would go, everybody would take a test. And even if we found a great, person, we would hire them, but that would actually help us figure out like what teams should they be on? Who should mm -hmm. they go work with? How can they go complement another team, right? Maybe you have a bunch of futurists and you need an operator to be there, or you need somebody to be, you know, the more the cynical person, because you have too many optimists on a team and you need to check some balances to make sure that things, you know, work their way in. So while I don't use that currently, um, I take that same type of, you know, uh, idea and philosophy when I go build teams. Mm -hmm. So for me, I know exactly. So the first thing about being a leader in building great teams is you have to have great self. You have to have really good self-awareness. You, you, you can't BS yourself. Mm -hmm. You really have to understand like, what are you good at and what are you not good at? Cause you're not good at everything. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I've done a tremendous job of understanding and, and dissecting myself. So when I start to go build teams, I know that, um, yes, I'm a futurist. Add in also that I'm, uh, you know, also ADHD. 
So I'm all always, you know, looking and doing stuff. And, um, and I use the superpowers that that gives me to, to get where I'm at today. But guess what? My first hire every single time is to go get a head of operations. And that is always the first thing I go and get. And, and I go get a top-notch head of operations, um, not go hire a bunch of salespeople or marketers or things like that, because that head of operations is going to allow to kind of put my strategy and be able to help me organize and operate how we need to kind of get done, mm-hmm. right? And, and push things through. And then, you know, sometimes, um, you know, you then start to look at, okay, how do you go complement, right? Different roles, different people. Because really what you're doing is you're just building a super team. You're building a team that when we actually go and, and work out there and roll out there, man, we have somebody who's an operator. We have somebody who can build culture. We have the motivator. We have the person who's going to challenge all of us to say, okay, Mike, you get really excited because you're always excited about the future. Let me show you the risks and help me bring you back down and show you like the, you know, the devil's advocate. Right. Mm-hmm. And some people don't like that. Some people, don't, you know, I love it. Like that's what we need. So I would say being able to like, understand that put your ego aside and and bring a team together that can challenge motivate do those things you know collectively um Mm -hmm. that's a key thing um and i would say i I measure that every single time we make hires Mm -hmm. so i before we make a hire i look at all of our team and i'm like who do we need what do we need and then we um interview that for that as well so like we'll tailor interview questions to make sure we're we're, we're nailing what we want there Mm -hmm. that's Mm -hmm. interesting because i I feel like it's almost like you're playing, it's like you're playing 4D chess. It's like there's the problem at hand, the, st- the level that you're on in which you need to solve a problem, you need to fill a position to be able to operate and stuff for the next like, like three, six, six months. And then there's also that added level of a game of what we discussed earlier of like what happens when you gr- you create a super team, you groom a lot of great talent, and then you have these big tech guys coming in and, and coming to poach. I, f- yeah. I feel like it sets you up very strategically to be able to identify what you're missing when when somebody does take that exit because if your operator if you know who your operator was and your operator gets taken away you know you have a hole in in your team stuff who you don't no longer have an operator so is the i guess a follow-up question to that is in those cases when that happens is your first is your next step, I guess, to hire, fill that operator hole? Or is there another tactic that you feel like moves the team forward? Yeah, um, we always need like a, I'm I'm a big believer in, we always need like a head of operations Mm -hmm. there. Um, For most CROs, uh, that goes against the grain to Mm -hmm. other philosophies. Um, I'm a bit different. I I grew up more on the, so as you say, right, thinking 40 chess, well, Mm -hmm. That goes back to like my software engineering background, right? So when you go build a piece of software, you got to think about every single thing a user may go do and how they're Mm -hmm. using your app or using something else, right? So it's the same type of same type of process there. So now the thing is, I will not settle for just any operator. Mm -hmm. So there is going to probably be a gap of, um, you know, months of, you know, how long is it going to take before you find that right person? So usually what we do in the short term, um, you know, I will basically, you know, I can easily strengthen up my operator skill set. You know, I've been a great operator for a long time. So um, it starts with basically understanding, okay, who, what do we need to do and who needs to take on what? Mm-hmm. So I'll look at the entire team and say, okay, I will handle, you know, this piece of the business. And this will be the part that, that I own. 
And then usually I have some people on my team that also are good operators in their own right. And then I'll look, also look for somebody who wants to enhance maybe a skill set they don't have. So, you know, say, for example, um, we had actually we had a situation like this in my last job where, you know, our head of operations, you know, had moved on. And um, we had a, a director of sales who's, you know, strong executor. Um, but, you know, his execution was more focused on like, you know, running the day to day sales team, running, you know, um, pipelines and all this other stuff. But I'm like, hey, would you love to, in the interim, handle some of this stuff in Salesforce, handle some of this stuff in here, you know, take on a little bit more. And, uh, and that was somebody, he, he loved it. He got excited about it because for him, it was like, oh, great, I can go learn something. So you want to go find opportunities like that. Like, even though it's like a crappy situation and say if you lose like a top person, mm-hmm. find ways to like enhance and give experience to somebody who's looking for it give them a career opportunity, you know what I mean? To put something on their resume and then find somebody who's going to be passionate about it. The last thing you want to do is go delegate it to somebody who's like, oh my gosh, I absolutely hate this. I don't want to do this because then you're not going to get the good output out of it. Hmm. Yeah. And I think like, um, that's interesting that you mentioned that because I think sometimes what brands do like in terms of mistakes is that maybe if you have, for example, like a top notch salesperson and maybe they want to move on to like a leadership role, for example, or it depends on whatever department that may be. Sometimes it's like a fear that you'll lose that person in that role and all of the expertise. Um, but then you can lose them all together and they can move on to a different company. And I think like a lot of, and just even noticing in the industry too, like People are scared to, I guess, empower those individuals. But if you don't empower them, they'll leave. So you're kind of like in that catch-22 because you don't want to, you know, especially in sales, if you have a book of business, you don't want to have that person lose that book of business. But then if that person leaves, then it, it doesn't really matter. In the end, they left. Oh, yeah. That is um, sales leaders make that mistake so many times, and I just do not understand why. It's, um, I mean, there's two things when a sales, when a top notch individual contributor salesperson wants to make that next step, there is some due diligence you want to do for that. So, you know, running sales teams for years, a lot of times with sales folks, um, they'll feel that that's just like an organic next step. Well, I guess I'll just go into leadership, um, man, going into sales leadership is a tough job. I mean, you go from one. If you're truly a, a, you know, the top salesperson on your team, you're likely making more money than your sales manager is uh, uh, immediately, right? Yeah. Just with commissions and stuff like that. So immediately, like, it's like you're taking a pay cut. You probably don't realize you are like, well, yes, you may get more base salary or whatever like that. You're not going to have the ability to control your own outcome, right? To go like blow out your, your numbers quarterly and things like that. I was like, so are you ready for that? Are also, are you ready for like, you don't get the like celebrations that most salespeople get, like every time you crush a quarter and everybody's singing your praises, like it's your job to sing the praises of your team now. And, and it's your job now to go empower and, and train your team, not for you to go take over their deals, not for them to go close them for them, but how can you go create that? So first step in those situations, I'm always like, I go through this like process of like, are you ready? Do, is this why you want to go do this? And what you'll get is. If they say yes, and I'm still a little like iffy, I'll ease them in and give them like a team lead position where they're still like an IC, but like, I'm like, look over these two sales folks that are new that just got hired, like train them up, do some one-on-ones with them, give them a little bit of a test run, right? To see if they, if this is something they enjoy. And what you end up finding out is like, 
half will be like, you know what, Mike, I'm good. Let, let me just keep, you know, cranking over here um, and I'll keep killing it and worried about myself. But then you have the others where, man, they just light up. They light up on grooming, helping people, empowering them, getting them to their, when you can nail that, that's when you have to say like, okay, well, yes, I'm losing my top sales rep to go into a leadership position. But now his goal, if he's going to go take over a team of say five or six people, is he's going to go make five or six more badasses, or she's going to go make five or six more badasses, and 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 be able to go and do that. Like that's where you have to go see the the future part of that. So I, I honestly mm -hmm. think like too many leaders make too many mistakes. I would say in, in in holding people back from 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 making those those plays. Yeah, and then I guess leading into my next question. Um, in terms of making mistakes, are there mistakes brands make or leaders make while building a team that you notice throughout your experience? Like, what are those mistakes, and and how can they combat those mistakes? Yeah, um, the first one I would have is um, excuse my French here, but you know I have a new <laughs> so it's the first one. The biggest mistakes I see is um, a brand wants to go higher, say you know. Uh, a top leader, right? Maybe somebody who can kind of, you know, lead plus do the work, you know, help scale. Great resume, great everything. Everything looks good on paper. Um, but, you know, not a, not a fit, right? Not a, uh, not a culture fit. They weren't vetted for that, right? They were just looked upon, you know, what that looks like. You know, what I always call this is, uh, I'm a big sports fan, but there used to be this football player back in the day named uh, Terrell Owens. And, uh, and everybody wanted him, right? So he's a receiver. People pay a lot of money. First year would go okay. He's producing. He's one of the best receivers in the league. By the second season, he's like fighting with his quarterback. They're fighting in the locker room. And then basically the whole team explodes, right? Wow. And and what I used to call this is like the brilliant jerk, right? The, the, the person who's just like, that's always like the first thing, right? It's like you get enamored by the big ego, the, the you know, what this looks like on paper. And that can set your company actually sometimes kill a small business if you're if you're not careful early on. So I would say that's like one big thing to look out for. The second piece is we hit on this a little bit earlier about like generalists versus finding somebody who's like one thing. Uh, I see that happen too many times. So instead of finding like those generalists, which you need to do at an early stage company, you go find someone who's like what I always say. It's like, um, you know, they're looking for what is step one through 10 for me to go do my job. And what I look to, what like the things I look for are curiosity is like one of the number one strengths you have to have. You have to be able to like, if there's a situation, your, your natural ability should be to ask more questions. Ask why it's like that. Ask why it's not working. Why is it working? Why do we do things that way? Like I want so many questions. So on the interview process, you have to almost like set up scenarios like that in an interview to see if their curiosity will take over, right? And there's a lot of things, you know, you can you can check for to make that up. Resourcefulness is a big one as well. Oh, um, you know, especially if you're a growing brand, you're not going to be this massive brand that just has this nice playbook of saying, here's exactly like how to do your job and our brand and all this other stuff and how you need to go and, you know, do the job that you have right now. And uh, what I always do, like one interview question, it's never right or wrong. But one thing I always ask is, you know, somebody will come and say, well, Mike, what's your training process look like and what resources will I have? And I'll go through, you know, whatever we have and talk them through that. And I'll say, okay, 
scrap that. What if um, I just told you that and I just lied? And then you took the job and you realize there's no training. There's nothing out there. You know the job you have to go do. What do you do to get yourself prepared? What do you do to go, you know, get yourself up to speed so you can go do your job? And you will uh, be surprised on the answers that you get. You'll have somebody who will just be stuck. Like, I don't even know how to like, where to even go with that. And then the folks who are very resourceful, it's crazy the creativity that they come up with. They're like, okay, cool. Like, I remember there was somebody at um, WP Engine when we did this. And he's like, okay, well, the first thing I would do is obviously WordPress is open source. So everything's out in the open. So I'm going to go learn about that. So I'm going to go to these forums. I'm going to go to these pages and do that. Then I know that the engineers over here. So I'm going to take time validating what that looks like over on the engineering side. And it's like, yes, you're the person I want. Mm -hmm. Because guess what? I'm hiring you right now to come in. Yes, today where we have this situation set up. But in order for brands and businesses to succeed, you got to reinvent yourself every one to two years, which means you're going to have to be resourceful at some point. You're going to have to go and roll your sleeves up and figure problems out and get things done. So I would say, you know, what I would tell brands, don't hire jerks, find very curious and very resourceful people um, that have those work ethics, those polymaths that are really you know, willing to do it. And don't get so consumed on the resume. Yes, there has to be some relevant experience, obviously, you know, that, that you need there in order to kind of do whatever job you're doing. But if there's somebody who's like a, a 10 year person, but you have a person who's maybe done it for five years or four years, but they have these intangibles, I would go with that person every single time. Yeah. And I think what you're mentioning too, even about the training, because um, is important because sometimes even just I've encountered in my career, just observing other people is that maybe sometimes you're promised a certain level of training or something of that sort, and then you get into the role and then it just, especially in startups, you just have to figure out certain things and everything's constantly moving. So it's how do you become resourceful and how do you essentially not only like pull your own weight, but like prosper in your role. So I I actually really like that question um, that you mentioned that you ask uh, candidates. Yeah, here's here's a good like just to add one more to there, and um, I'll I'll give her a shout out. But you know, one of our one of my current people on my team right now, her name's Candice. Um, she's a self development rep, right? And her whole her whole job is to go open up opportunities with enterprise brands out there, right? For for us to connect in and hopefully you know win there. I've run so many SDR teams in the past, and that's like where we always run into trouble. It's like, it's a, it's a very sales and marketing kind of hybrid type role and you have to kind of figure things out. But what you'll do is you'll just have SDRs go through and do the same thing hundreds of times, definition of insanity, expecting a different outcome. They continue to fail and, and they're wondering like, I don't know what I'm doing. And then two weeks later, they're like, well, I tried 500 times. They're like, well, you haven't thought of trying a different way because they're looking for direction of like, you know, either from their leader or somebody else to tell them, okay, what else should we go do different? And Candice running lean and mean, she is our like one SDR. I mean, the best I've ever seen. I mean, she will go in there, AB test something, try out different, you know, ICPs, try out different ways, different messaging, how to personalize different channels on how to personalize. And like, she Mm. produces more than probably a team of five that I've had in the past. Cool. On, on quality what we do. I mean, complete rock star. And I can't even take credit. She was here before I got here. So it's like, I can't say like we, but you know, 
our head of sales, we hired her like great job. And it's like that right there, right. Is, um, you know, the, like the checking off all those boxes I just talked about, like, that's what it is, right. Someone who's not like, I don't want to look for somebody who needs approval, like just go get it done. Mm-hmm. Like go, go make it happen. Like, you know, be an entrepreneur, right. Um, be able to kind of, you know, pull your sleeves up and, and, you know, try some things out. Mm-hmm. No, I love that, especially with SDR teams as well, because I mean, I actually was an SDR mm-hmm. as well. Um, so on the enterprise side, so, you know, like it's definitely a role that you need a lot of like perseverance and, mm-hmm. um, you know, motivation, self-motivation, cause it can be a very difficult role dealing with rejection a lot of the times. Um, so having those like rocks and they're the first point of contact, mm-hmm. right? They're the ones that create oh, yeah. those opportunities to close those deals. So it's extremely important function. Um, how do you keep someone like a Candace motivated and, you know, not get poached by like another company, but keeping her happy and yeah. staying with you guys? Yeah, I, um, yeah, that's something, you know, we continually actually, I would say, think about all the time, right? So it's, um, the first things first is, um, understanding where she wants to be career-wise mm-hmm. all right so she she made a um a career change she hadn't been in technology before she was uh, you know in a in a in a uh, different um different industry so what does she want to do as that next step right is it leadership is it um to become a cell you know go into becoming an ae um what that looks like so i think first things first is like aligning out that career path for that and also understanding that while I may have our, it goes back to our earlier point, while we might have the best SDR in the world that I've ever worked with, um, we can't then limit her and her career path because of that. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, what we're doing kind of in the interim is like, let's start documenting. What's your process? How are you succeeding? What are you doing here? Um, how can we go then when we hire the next wave of SDRs, right? How can we train, find, identify these things and maybe even open up a leadership position for her mm-hmm. to, to kind of take over and, and go build that out. So that's what it's really all about in a lot of different roles with high performers. It's like you don't rest on your laurels. Don't just assume that they're killing it and they're just happy because guess what? Um, anybody in the U.S. or North America, any business can poach your people mm-hmm. out. And we know that with how remote work is going now. So it's it's not like a, oh yeah, well, you know, what businesses are hiring? Granted, she lives in California, so that wouldn't <laughs> even matter this time. But it's um, but still like that's the that's the key for me. It's just we have to be out in front of these type of things. Um, and not and not wait. I think that's the thing that drives me crazy about some businesses is that wait to take care of your people when they're like about to leave. And I just always feel, I forgot what report I read, but like, you know, when somebody takes an offer and then you give them a counter offer and they decide to stay, they end up leaving in nine months anyways. I mean, I'll be the first one to say that. That happened to me when I was at Rackspace. I was about to leave. I got a counter offer. I stayed because the whole loyalty and I'd been there for Mm -hmm. so long. They gave me my shot. Literally to the dot, like nine to 10 months later, I left a big commerce. And it's because even though like, you know, yes, maybe finances is always a part of it, you know, you know, want to get paid more or whatever like that. There's usually something deeper 
And for me, like, okay, I got a pay raise. Cool. Mm-hmm. Still didn't solve my boredom nine months later. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it yeah. still didn't like, you know, and that that's where I think, um, you know, having to get out in front of those things is, is always key. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so we've, we've gone to talk a lot about the, these uncovering and discovering talents and stuff within your team, building an excellent roster of, of team members, a machine, if you will, and stuff. And, and, you know, planning for like, what does that mean when that machine evolves, people leave and stuff, or they're ready and stuff to take on more responsibilities, which is amazing because it sounds like from a leadership, like standpoint and stuff, like you're playing that 4D chess, you're thinking of all these scenarios. I think the difficulty is, is identifying though, sometimes like those internal, those internal conflicts in your, your team as well. Mm. You know, I think as we all know, like, no one is immune to imposter syndrome or the other kind of like internal conflicts mm-hmm. that comes to doing when you knock on the door of like new opportunity or in the kind of like uncharted territory that a lot of these entrepreneurs go into, you know, is there anything that you do from a coaching standpoint to unpack that with your teams who might be facing something like imposter syndrome? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a uh, great question. So Look, to, to start off my answer, um, I've dealt with imposter syndrome held the majority of my career, right? Um, grew up from humble beginnings. Uh, you know, dad was mechanic and, you know what I mean? Like, I didn't grow up in this, like, tech, you know, type setup, you know, when, uh, you know, growing up. So I've always felt this, like, inferiority complex, right? That I just didn't belong. Dropped out of school. So that was always a big insecurity for me, you know, when you know, everybody are going from promotions and they're talking about the MBA program they're joining and all this other stuff. And I'm like, shit, I can't even attempt to do it because I haven't got my degree yet. And, you know, so I dealt with this so many times in my career. Right. And um, so I, I feel that. So I think how I got through that was, you know, great leadership who like put that crap aside. Right. And, you know, they looked at me for what did I produce? What did I do? How did, you know, what type of outcomes that I, that I created, right? So what I do for my team, and when I kind of think back to this is when, when people have imposter syndrome, I'm a big believer in leading with empathy, mm-hmm. a huge and vulnerability. So I think where leaders make a ton of a big mistakes and where imposter syndrome, you know, creates is people sometimes feel like their leaders are going to see them as failures or their insecurities that may be causing these imposter syndromes is a sign of weakness. And what I do is I try to break down that wall and I basically sit down and we'll be in a one-on-one. And and the thing is when you've gone through it, I can see it so quickly and people, when they're kind of like, there's this wall and and I'll sit there and have a conversation with them. And and actually what I'll do is I'll lead with all of my insecurities, Mm -hmm. all of the issues I got challenged as feeling as an imposter, even today, everybody feels that because honestly, if you're not challenging yourself in a role, you probably do. Everybody probably does feel an ounce of imposter syndrome somewhere of like, okay, do I belong? Do I, do I, do I, am I supposed to be here? And what I try to do first is to kind of break that down and to say like, it's okay. Like me, you and I are talking here. I've been through that exact same thing at your point of the career. And then what I'll do is try to build them up and then give them a challenge and say, Mm-hmm. All I care about, I don't care if you fail. I don't care if you don't get this done. What I want you to do is go make this happen. I believe in you. I will give you all the resources to go and get this done. I will work with you, help you, you know, do whatever you need to do. 
but I want you to go make this happen and I want you to own mm-hmm. this. And yeah. just know that regardless of the outcome, I got your back. And, you know, and when you're able to empower somebody like that, you start to create a culture of, you know, it's okay to fail, fail fast, learn from your mistakes, iterate, try something differently. If you create a culture of this, like perfection, nothing gets done, nothing gets out the door. Um, if you create a culture of like, you don't want to go take risk, how are you going to grow? How are you going to go find new markets? If you're a brand, how are you going to go and, and, like if somebody stepped up and said, you know, I'm a brand and they're in, you know, fashion, they say, I think there's a massive opportunity to go sell into this country. And everybody's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, I think that's too big of a jump, but they go and own it and it works. And that might be the difference of a brand going from 10 million to a hundred million dollars. But if you don't create that culture because somebody is too scared to go and make that, that move or feeling that they're going to get judged if they make a mess, you'll never grow. You'll never innovate. You'll never make that push. So. Um, yeah, that's the way I, I approach it. You know, it's not very scientific. It's very emotional. It's very relationship based. You, you have to help people believe in themselves and then realize that you're not perfect either. And don't put your, put your ego aside, be okay. Talking about your insecurities. Like I, I'll get in front of my entire organization and company and tell them about the crap I suck at. And I have no problem doing that. And guess what? You are human. And the more that you can humanize an organization and realize that we're all human and we've all gone through the same experiences, that opens it up. Sky's the limit from there. And then people can go really see through what their potential is. Yeah, I really appreciate that because I think, and something I've noticed, um, is that sometimes just like preserving psychological safety within an organization is so important. Cause even when I first start certain jobs, especially being newer in your career, I just, you have this fear like, Oh my gosh, I'm going to get fired if I fail. And, and you just constantly mm-hmm. think that and I dealt with that for a long time. Um, and actually something that helped me was my manager. I just moved into a new team and something that, well, her and I just have a close bond, but something that she would always tell me is that, you know, you're going to mess up and that's fine and we're going to learn and this is going to be something we're going to do together. But like, I have your back and, and, you know, I'm here and I really value your growth and just being not only a great, um, you know, manager, but just like a great friend and mentor and someone that I absolutely trust because I find sometimes, especially when you're newer to leadership, you can, because maybe you're nervous that you want to meet your goals, you can lead with like micromanaging and fear mm-hmm. rather than leading with humility and, and that you have someone's back and trust. Yeah. Great, great point. I, I think, um, so to your point, those are good questions to ask when you're looking for a job. Mm-hmm. So when you're, when you're going, um, to go join a new organization, right. Is, you know, right. Every interview, they say, what questions do you have for me? Mm-hmm. Well, ask him the questions of like, well, when things are going bad, like, how do you go and motivate your team? How do you go and do these things? Because you, you have to, uh, you know, I always tell this to it's tough, right? I mean, especially during your career, you're, you're fighting, trying to get jobs and stuff like that. But you know, you also don't want to get yourself in a bad situation. And, um, Oh, those are the worst ones. It just gave me bad memories when you said that. Like the, mm-hmm. when things get tough, you lead by fear. And that's just a, I mean, quick way, you're going to lose your entire team. One, give it six months, we'll all be gone looking for other jobs. So it's, it's you know, that person, it, it's nothing's going to happen there. But it's like, man, if you could just take a step back and just realize like we're human, understand the symptom. 
understand why um, things aren't going that way, you know? Because um, like for me, the, the non-negotiable also for me is like hard work. My team's working hard and they're putting the effort in and they're making it happen and they're, and they're doing all, you know, it's my job to go figure out then why. Like it's my mm-hmm. job to go figure out like, that's what you do as a leader. Is it our, if it's an SDR team, is it our messaging? Is it something that, you know, we're not nailing? Is it our product? Is it something that we're not doing here? Not go and push fear and say, you know, make more phone calls. And it's like, well, I can make 20 more phone calls with the same shitty message. It's not going to like (laughs) (laughs) turn into anything better, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I really, really appreciate that. And I think that's something that a lot of leaders still need to learn, especially when you're newer. I mean, I'm not in leadership yet, but that's something that my manager and I always have conversations about. You know, she she told me, you know, you're going to eventually be in a leadership role. We need to start thinking about um, how you want to lead people. And she even said, she said, there's going to there's gonna be things that you don't like that I do and things that other past managers that you didn't like. So take those things and um, that you felt when you were in that position and make sure basically that that doesn't happen when you're leading somebody, which I really appreciate and, and really like made me think about um, in terms of like when I step up to be in a leadership position eventually. Yeah, that's key because you, you every all of you are our future, you know, sales and marketing and revenue leaders, right? So you have to um, change course. And I think it is happening. I, I, I do feel um, I've seen less of that. I feel like in this kind of new cohort of leaders, more operationally minded, more empathetic, more understanding the human emotion piece of, of what it takes to run a successful business. So, you know, we have to continue to keep, um, you know, building that up. Yeah, no, Mike, this has been incredible. And I really hope that, you know, our listeners and stuff take a lot, real like deep stock of what, you, of the, the importance of team building and stuff that you've shared with us and stuff in, the, in ways of essentially, you know, defending against those silent killers, like that risk of psychological safety and stuff of those, <laughs> pardon my French, and stuff like those assholes who can, you know, make their way into a business and very much hurt things from the ground up. Because I think what we're seeing is this incredible new renaissance of G2C and like e-commerce brands. And like, we want to see them succeed, but it really does start with your people first. So thank you so much for sharing your time with us. Where can our listeners uh, follow you on your journey? Yeah, sure. So um, yeah, look me up on LinkedIn. I'm there. Um, I tend to post a ton about, uh, need to do it more, but tend to post a ton about leadership and a lot of the topics that we talk about. It's something I'm very passionate about. Um, I will, um, I usually do weekly um, mentor sessions for whoever. Um, so I do them Fridays at like 10 o'clock. I need to post out my uh, calendar link again because I think I just ran through two months of, of these. So anybody who wants to do it, doesn't matter what it is. All I always say is um, don't try to call and sell me something or, you know, don't take that time slot, right? I, I'm looking for people who generally want to to grow and, and get some advice to do that. And then, um, and yeah, please follow me on Twitter. Uh, I think it's uh, Mike A. Sanchez uh, uh, there on Twitter. And yeah, that's that's where I'm at. So yeah, I definitely enjoyed uh, the conversation. Um, I love talking about this stuff. It's, uh, it gets me really excited. And um, and honestly, it's one of the, the most, uh, I would say, um, one of the most uh, areas of businesses that, that sometimes uh, aren't the first part of the focus, and, but also the most critical. Yeah, 
Oh, awesome. This is an amazing episode. Thank you so much. I love this. this. We we didn't shed light onto a topic like this yet. So this was, there's so much value that I think people can take away. So I really, really appreciate um, you coming on. Of course. Likewise.